I would invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, right after Lamentations, just before Daniel. Uh, if you open your Bible in the middle-ish, I'm just looking at mine to see about where it is. In the middle-ish, if you land in the Psalms or the Proverbs, you're going to want to flip a few pages uh, uh, f- uh, forward uh, in your Bible or, uh, or toward the back-ish, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, we'll be in all of the book today, so I invite you to open your, open your Bibles to Ezekiel. And you may want to open it starting, because we'll read in just a moment from Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 28. Uh, You may want to start there, but keep a finger at the front of Ezekiel as we'll kind of work our way through uh, important parts of this book. Uh, At the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after he is raised from the dead, appears to two of his disciples along a road going to a town called Emmaus. The two disciples uh, are not there named, uh, maybe not among the twelve, but uh, perhaps uh, from the larger group of people that... Uh, we're following Jesus, and the resurrected Christ appears to them on that road, and as they're going along, they're talking about all the things that had just happened in Jerusalem the week before, how this Jesus was delivered over to, uh, to Pilate and to the other officials uh, to be crucified as a criminal unjustly, crimes he had not committed, and yet that there was news that he had been raised from the dead. Some of their friends had gone to the grave where Jesus had been buried, and, uh, and they found that his body was not there. Jesus says to those two disciples, still, uh, they, they do not yet recognize him in his glorified, resurrected state. But he says to them, though, oh, you foolish uh, and slow of heart to understand all that was spoken to you. Uh, do you not know that all these things had to be fulfilled? And Luke says in Luke chapter 24, that then beginning with uh, Moses and all of the prophets, uh, Jesus related to them all the things concerning himself. There, Jesus interpreting the Old Testament, those are the scriptures that they had, Moses and the prophets, saying, these things are really about me. Uh, The Old Testament is not uh, a story about a God who is far removed from his people, a God different from the God of of the New Testament. No, the Old Testament is a gospel book, a gospel collection of books. And Ezekiel, this prophet, major prophet, major not because he's like in the, in the, you know, in, in the, the, it's not triple A, whatever, it's just the big leagues, and all the other prophets are in the minor leagues, not like major and minor in that way, but just it's a bigger prophet, 48 chapters of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel, one of these prophets, his, his message is a, is a message of judgment and a message of hope to the people of Israel as they're about, as some have already gone into exile in Babylon, as some are yet to go into exile in Babylon. And it can be easy for us when we read these Old Testament prophets to think that this is a book just for them then, a long time ago, it has no meaning for us today. But I submit to you that Ezekiel is actually a gospel book. It's a book that points us to the hope of Christ, even several hundred years before Christ was ever born. Ezekiel is a book that displays the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the, the justice of God, and yet His mercy and compassion for sinners and desire to save them. It's a book that anticipates Christ's coming in, uh, in ways that probably its first recipients may not have quite understood, but yet there were glimmers, there were silver linings of hope there in Ezekiel, especially toward the end, that the people of Israel would have clung on to with, uh, with, with white-knuckled hope in the time that they're spending in exile. This morning, uh, Ezekiel is the subject of our study. As we come to this book or to any book, and I hope you received a note sheet as you came in, a little bifold note sheet 
uh, on Ezekiel, and I encourage you to kind of use that as a tool as we make our way through this book this morning. It's helpful for us to consider all of the historical and, and sort of background information, context information for these books as we study them. Uh, the author of this book is Ezekiel, the prophet. His name means God strengthens. Ezekiel was uh, a priest born in a priestly line. He was the son of Buzi. And yet, Ezekiel was a priest who did not serve in the temple. He comes from a priestly line, but by the time he was old enough to serve in the temple, he had already been exiled to Babylon. And so he's a priest without a place of service. We know that Ezekiel ministered from exile in the foreign nation of Babylon from the time that he was about 30 years old, which is when uh, priests in Israel usually began their service for about 20, 25 years. This would have been the span of a priest's entire service in the temple, interestingly enough. So his, his time of prophecy takes up the whole time that he would have been serving as a priest. There are several date markers in Ezekiel that note that his prophecies began sometime in the summer of the year 593 B.C. and continued through 571 B.C. We know that Jerusalem was sacked and uh, and sieged by Babylon and the temple destroyed sometime around 586 B.C., right there in the middle of, uh, uh, of much of Ezekiel's ministry. If I were to summarize or help, if we could summarize Ezekiel in just a few short sentences, I would do it this way and just say that Ezekiel is a long book. 48 chapters, but it's well-structured. There's a very clear structure to to, to the way that Ezekiel has has organized these prophecies that God has given to him. In it, Ezekiel is called and tasked by God to deliver oracles of divine warning about impending judgment against Jerusalem, the people who live there, the Israelites that are there, unless they repent of their idolatry uh, and sins of injustice. After Jerusalem eventually falls entirely to Babylon in the middle of Ezekiel's ministry and all the people are taken into exile, the oracles, the words from the, from the Lord through Ezekiel shift around chapter 33 or so. There's a, a marked shift in the tone of the prophecies, a shift from a tone of judgment to a tone of hope, hope for restoration by God that comes along with the repentance of the people and renewal as God's people whom he himself promises to shepherd and to give them a new heart and a new spirit to follow him. And so in this state, in this renewed state, in this restored state, the people of Israel, as Ezekiel prophesies, will enjoy the presence of God among them. Now, as you work your way through Ezekiel, and I encourage you to do so, uh, it is a a task worth doing to read through a a prophet in one or two or three sittings. It, It might take you about three hours to read Ezekiel all the way through from chapter 1 through chapter 48. Uh, When I study for these sermons, what I like to do is read the whole book in one sitting if I can. Sometimes it takes two. Ezekiel took me two. But I like to listen to an audio Bible at the same time that I'm reading it. It helps me to absorb the information uh, all the more and all the more better. I encourage you to do so. As you study Ezekiel on your own, you'll notice several themes that just rise right to the front, right to the top of the book. Themes like the holiness of God, just all over the place. That's a consistent theme of all of the prophets, major or minor. We have themes of the Lord's supremacy over other gods, that He is God and beside Him there is no other. We see the importance of God's people to live in holiness throughout Ezekiel. God has called them to be different in the world as they reflect His character into the world. And so, as His people that He saved from slavery in Egypt and delivered them to be a nation, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, He intends for them to live a particular way. And He calls them out when they're not. There's also the theme, especially in the latter chapters of Ezekiel, 
of the promise of restoration to the repenting remnant of Israel. The promise of restoration to those who turn from sin and place their faith and trust in God. God works throughout human history in, uh, in a way that theologians have called just redemptive history or redemption history. It's the story of God's work from creation and placement of Adam and Eve in the garden until the very end when Christ returns to bring with Him a new heavens and a new earth and to, bring and to call to Himself all those who belong to Him. The redemptive history takes place in four epochs, four uh, movements, if you will, and we see these in Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, the beginning, Genesis chapters 1 through 2. The fall starts in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. They become sinners. They bring a break of fellowship with God into their own lives. They bring sin into the world. And from, the, and from that point until almost Jesus arrives, we're in that main epic of the fall and all the consequences of it. But throughout the Old Testament, even starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God gives a promise of one who will come to crush the head of the serpent who tempted Eve to sin, we have this tone of redemption, this expectation of rescue for God's people. And that tone of redemption uh, is revisited, that theme of redemption, that, that melody of redemption is played over and over again throughout the Old Testament until it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of Mary, a virgin, who lived a life without sin, the life that no one could ever live, who died a death uh, uh, on a Roman cross for sins he had not committed, for crimes he had not committed, a death that all of us deserved, and there provided a means of rescue from sin, him in our place, his righteousness for our sin. The promise of the gospel, the promise of rescue, redemption, is that whoever trusts in Jesus as that substitutionary sacrifice for their sins, who submits their life to Him as Lord, who follows Him every day of their life, the, the promise of Scripture is that they will be saved. They will be redeemed. They will be rescued. And we are looking forward to a coming day, a coming consummation of Christ's kingdom when He will make uh, the heavens and the earth new and bring to Himself, call to Himself all who have trusted Him to live with Him forever uh, in, in a place of blessed communion with God uh, where there is no more uh, crying, mourning, no more tears, no more sin, uh, only gladness in the presence of God. So where does Ezekiel fit in the scope of redemption history? Well, to be sure, it, it certainly falls historically like on a timeline in this period uh, between fall and redemption. But Ezekiel covers themes of the fall. There's a lot of judgment of sin. Themes of redemption. There's hope for salvation for those who repent, and covers themes of consummation. Toward the end of Ezekiel, we get this grand, this beautiful vision that God gives to his prophet of a place of paradise where God's people will live with him forever. So if, you were to, if I were to locate Ezekiel in the scope of redemption history, I would have to sort of draw a circle or a, or a box around those last three epics, fall, redemption, consummation, because in its themes, it covers all of them and kind of in that order. As you read Ezekiel, you need to know that Ezekiel falls into a category of literature called prophecy, prophetic literature. A biblical prophecy is often less about foretelling the future. It's not forecasting what's going to happen so much as it is forthtelling, telling forth what the Lord has declared regarding the current state of His people and His response to where they are. Often the prophets will be speaking in the midst of specific historic events. We see that in Ezekiel 
And the oracles, the words from the Lord to the, to the people through the prophets are pertinent. They matter to the day in which they were spoken. So when you read Ezekiel and you study this book on your own, ask questions to help you understand it better, like, what's the historic context of these oracles? What's going on in, in history and in the history of the people of Israel? How would the first hearers, the first readers of Ezekiel, how would those who heard uh, this message for the first time, how would they have received or responded to these prophecies? What do the oracles from God to Ezekiel and to the people, what do they reveal about God's character? And what do they reveal about how He relates to His people? And then finally ask, how does God's revelation of His character then, and the way He deals with people, apply to how people should live now, on the other side of the fulfillment of this gospel hope we have in Christ? Uh, I said Ezekiel is a well-structured, highly-structured book. And, and if you were to outline Ezekiel, it's actually pretty easy. There's kind of four parts, really. There's the inaugural vision that Ezekiel has in chapters 1 to 3, when God appears to him and calls him to this ministry the first time. Then from chapters 4 to 24, you have all of these prophecies against the city of Jerusalem and the people that live there and all of their sins. From chapters 25 to 32, there's a series of oracles against the nations, against non-Israelite peoples. Uh, there's a, a particular focus upon two places, uh, two uh, in particular. One, a uh, city of Tyre, which was a port city in the north, uh, north of Israel, that was well known for its economic strength. It was a place where if anybody wanted to do international business, it went through Tyre. And then there's a, an emphasis of judgment upon the people of Egypt or the nation of Egypt there as well who was known not for economic strength, but for military might. Then chapters 33 through 48 are really chapters of promise of restoration and renewal for the people of Israel. And so, in a very clear way, Ezekiel kind of breaks in half in two messages, judgment and hope, removal and renewal. And those are the themes that we'll consider today. I invite you, as you're comfortably able, I hope you found your way to Ezekiel chapter 36. Would you stand with me as we honor God by the public reading of His Word? Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 28. We're going to get here in a moment, but I'm going to start here so you have a sense of where we're going, because it's going to get bad before it gets better. The Lord says through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." This is God's Word. You may be seated. Ezekiel, a book about the gospel, but the gospel that comes through these two themes of removal and renewal. As we open Ezekiel, we are confronted, first of all, in chapters 1 through 3 with God's glory and Ezekiel's call. God's glory and Ezekiel's call. 
This prophetic book begins with one of the more captivating visions in all of Scripture. As as Ezekiel describes, during a storm one day, as he watched it develop and move toward him from the horizon, the Lord showed the prophet a vision of four angelic creatures. Cherubim, the Bible calls them. Each of these creatures had four faces and four wings, and each of these four creatures with four faces and four wings sit atop something like a whirling wheel within a wheel that has eyes all over it. What a wild picture. Their appearance, Ezekiel says, is like burnished bronze, and they go wherever they want on the earth to survey it. Above them and on the wheels that they sit atop rests a throne, as Ezekiel sees it. Specifically, it's the throne of God. The prophet says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, above the expanse over their heads, the heads of these cherubim, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking." This is the way Ezekiel starts, with a vision of the incomparable beauty of God. There's no way that human language can approximate what Ezekiel's eyes saw. He does the best he can with human language to describe what he sees, which is why we have such a a strange description. There's there's nothing in human language to really compare it very well to, so he picks the best description he, he can. He describes this vision in many ways the same way that Isaiah and much later John would see, uh, John the Apostle would see Jesus and when they see, or, or the Lord, and when they see him, they stumble to find words to adequately describe the appearance of the Lord. He's beautiful and at the same time frightening. He's awe-inspiring and also terrible, and he is lovely and powerful. And when Ezekiel sees the Lord, he does what anyone who sees God in Scripture does. He faints falls down on his face. He hides his eyes from, the, from glory that he knows he is not worthy to look upon. Ezekiel's inaugural vision sets the tone for the rest of the book. If you read Ezekiel and you miss the vision that he has of the Lord in Ezekiel 1, you're going to miss so much of the, of the weight of the import of the rest of the book. In fact, Ezekiel will do virtually no speaking of his own in the whole book uh, that bears his name. In chapter 2, verse 4, Ezekiel gets the call from the Lord to say to the people of Israel who have been rebellious and sinful and stubborn to say, thus says the Lord. That, that's Ezekiel's job. That's what God tells him to do. And this, this phrase, thus says the Lord, appears over 120 times in Ezekiel. You, you'll, you'll see it multiple times on almost every page. When Ezekiel speaks, understand, he speaks not his own words, but the words of this glorious God who appeared to Ezekiel this way. This one whose throne rests upon those frightful cherubim. So here's the truth that we must remember. That every word of Scripture is spoken by this God who appeared to Ezekiel. Now, yeah, Ezekiel says 120 times, thus says the Lord. But friends, everything from Genesis to Revelation is what the Lord has said. His frightful holiness, His awesome power is behind every word, every sentence, every paragraph, and every book of the Bible. I should think that if any of us were to encounter God like Ezekiel did, that we would receive all that God said with the utmost attention and careful obedience. If God, if the Lord appears to you in this very visceral, very almost tangible way that He appeared to Ezekiel, what would you do but listen? 
Imaginings, uh, visions of God in our minds as a kindly old grandfather in the sky do not do justice to His glory. And they do not do justice to our approach to His Word either. Visions like this lead us to think that God is some feckless, feeble, unwatching, uncaring character. But the Lord who appears in all of His glory to Ezekiel is a God who sees everything. He's a God who knows everything, and He's a God who is worthy of all reverence and worship. When Ezekiel sees Him, he faints. He falls down as though dead. The Bibles that we hold in our laps this morning are God's glorious Word that He has spoken. We do well to listen to it. The Word of the glorious God is worth listening to, and Ezekiel does listen to what God says to him. It's also a lovely Word to receive. Part of God's commission to Ezekiel requires that he eat a scroll. In his vision, he's given a scroll and he's told to eat it. It's an image of God's word entering into him to be spoken out by him. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 3, verse 3, The Lord said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now here's a conundrum for Ezekiel. The word of the Lord is sweet as honey. But it will not be received that way by those who hear it. Ezekiel receives it as sweet, as delightful, but he knows that when he speaks it to others, it's not going to appear that way. Like Isaiah before him, Ezekiel will have to speak a word of warning about sin to a people who will refuse to hear it, to a people who will not find it sweet, but rather bitter and harsh and unappealing. In fact, the people of Israel are so committed to their sins that God compares them to briars and thorns in chapter 2, that preaching to them will be like sitting on scorpions, Ezekiel. The Word of God is sweet to those who receive it, knowing from whom it comes, the Lord of glory, but it's bitter to those who live for their own glory. How does God's Word most often taste in your mouth, friend? Not literally tearing pages out of your Bible and eating them, but... When you read His Word, how does it sit in your stomach, spiritually speaking? Is God's Word lovely even when it's hard, like broccoli? Is it it beautiful to you even when it convicts you of your sinful ugliness? Do you still love it even when it says you're wrong and you need to repent? Is it delightful even when it calls you to turn from sin and self and seek God's glory? This is Ezekiel's call, to take the sweet beautiful, satisfying word of the holy God to a people who have replaced their taste for it with a love for sin. And so in chapter 3 and later in chapter 33, these chapters that frame the, the harshest part, the hardest part of Ezekiel, God sets his prophet like a watchman on the wall. That's what he tells Ezekiel he'll be like. You'll be like a watchman on the wall. You're to look out for what is coming to the people in the city that, that, that you stand as a watchman for. You're to deliver true news to them. And hold nothing back, but only say what God has told him to say. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. We read, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. The phrase, don't shoot the messenger, seems especially applicable for Ezekiel. He's got a hard word for the people. 
And God tells him, everything that I tell you, you better say to them. Because if you don't warn the people about their wickedness, they'll die for their sins, but I'm also going to require their blood from you. You're also in trouble because I told you to tell them and you didn't. This is literally all that Ezekiel will be, a messenger, a repeater of a word from the Lord. In fact, Ezekiel is not even allowed by God to speak any of his own words for the majority of his ministry. Ezekiel 3, 26 to 27, the Lord says to him, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for they are a, rebe- they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And he who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse for they are a rebellious house. How, how's that for a calling? How's that for a preaching schedule? <laughs> We may look at Ezekiel's life and his calling and think, my goodness, that is harsh. To not even be allowed to speak unless God gives you permission. I hope instead you see the kindness of God to Ezekiel in his calling. Given the harshness of the initial warning that comes, Ezekiel will never have to wonder whether or not he said it the right way. Sometimes it's a blessing to not be able to speak, but the words that God has given to you. Because God will tell him all that he is to say. And even much later, when the message of Ezekiel gets better and more hopeful, when his his call is to proclaim a message of hope and renewal for those who repent, Ezekiel himself will have the confidence of knowing that that the good news that he brings is not a part of some crazed fever dream of his or an attempt to soothe people who are angry with him or angry at the Lord. But instead, he has the confidence of knowing that this good news is a sure word from the holy God. But of course, as often it goes with the prophets, things are going to get far worse before they get any better. And so very quickly after this inaugural vision in Ezekiel 1 to 3, we have this message of judgment to the people of Israel. This message of judgment is one of removal. They're about to be removed from their city, from their uh, homeland. This theme of removal comes, first of all, in a message to the city of Jerusalem that Jerusalem will be removed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It is hard to be a prophet in Israel. Not only is the word of the Lord often one of judgment, but the life of the prophet is often full of physical enactment. The life of the prophet becomes his message. He's he's required by God to act out these prophecies, these oracles as a visible demonstration of what God is going to do later. Ezekiel, even though he's living in exile in Babylon before Jerusalem was ever destroyed, he'll be commanded to do a bunch of physical enactments of prophecies. He's commanded by God to create a model of Jerusalem out of bricks and stones and, uh, and even a, a model siege works around it to signify the coming fall of the city at the hands of Babylon in chapter 4. Ezekiel will be commanded to shave his head with a sword. I don't think that's all too bad shave his head with a sword, but then take all of his hair and throw one-third of his hair in the fire to take one-third of his hair and strike it with a sword, which is a strange picture, and then take the last third of his hair and throw it to the wind. This is to be a picture of the fire and the sword and the scattering that are to come upon the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 5, God tells us or gives Ezekiel that instruction. More devastating still in terms of a prophet's life enacting what God will do. More devastating still, the Lord is going to take the life of Ezekiel's wife and not even allow Ezekiel to mourn. We read in Ezekiel chapter 24, beginning in verse 16, 
Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. You shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your, nor, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put, on your, put, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as, as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting this way? And I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. Now this phrase, then you will know, then they will know that I am the Lord, appears all over the place in Ezekiel. This is precisely why God is doing what He is doing with His people in the world, so that they and so that the nations of the world will know that He is the Lord, that He is sovereign, that He is in charge. This is the judgment. God is going to remove the city of Jerusalem from its place of prominence and power and influence. Babylon, this great nation from the east, will destroy it, will burn it to the ground, will put its people to the sword and scatter the survivors. But that's not even the worst of it. There's judgment that comes in removal of Israel, but also God judges the people of Israel by removing His glory from the temple. In chapters 8 and 9 of Ezekiel, the prophet is taken in the Spirit and given a tour of the temple of the Lord in far off Jerusalem. This is a visionary tour, not a a literal, he was taken, he he was transported to the temple in Jerusalem. This is God showing him this in a vision. And on that visionary tour of the temple, we read in Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, Then he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy, uh, an idol that had been set up in the temple to a false god. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But, I, but you will see still greater abominations. As Ezekiel is taken further in this vision, he sees idols of every creature littered about the temple being offered incense by the elders of Israel. He sees women weeping for the Mesopotamian god Tammuz. He sees two dozen men with their backs to the temple facing east to worship the rising sun. And he sees a vision of angelic warriors entering into the temple, warriors of God, to destroy all of the idolaters for their profaning of the temple. And then as though this weren't enough already for the prophet to hear or to bear, the Lord packs his bags and leaves the house that was once dedicated to his worship. Ezekiel 10, beginning in verse 15, the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kiber Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. 
It may be difficult for us to grasp the pain of this image that Ezekiel sees, but I hope you'll try. You'll remember that it was the glory of God in flame and cloud that guarded the Hebrews when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. It was the glory of God that came to rest on the tabernacle when it was constructed as God had commanded Moses in Exodus chapter 40. And then again, God's glory resting, coming upon filling the temple that was constructed by Solomon in 1 Kings 8. The glory of God is the very presence of God among His people in this place of His worship. It's the assurance of His relationship to them in in covenant uh, relationship as their God and them as His people. It's an indication, His glory, the presence of His glory is an indication of the bond of the covenant that He had made with them at Sinai. And now, His presence is gone. His glory has left. He's abandoned the house that was made for His worship. He's distanced Himself from the people that He saved from slavery. I'm done, God has said. I'm out. In Deuteronomy 28, God gave ample warning that this would happen if the people worshipped other gods, if they neglected justice among their own people, if they broke covenant with God. And boy, had they ever. If you ever were concerned that the people got worse than they deserved, just consider how God characterizes their idolatry. If ever you're tempted to think, man, God is so harsh to Israel, what is up with that? Consider what God says, how He characterizes what the Israelites have done in Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning of verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. You're worse than a prostitute, he says. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment. Well, no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. At the risk of losing my job, I'll read the Bible some more. (laughs) You laugh now. You'll vote later. In even more graphic language, God compares Samaria and Judah, uh, the the peoples of Israel after they're divided uh, following Solomon's death. He compares them to fictional harlot sisters named Ahola and Oholibah. And of Oholibah, who represents Judah and Jerusalem, this is what God says. This is how God characterizes the people living in Jerusalem. uh, Ezekiel 23, verses 18 through 21 When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her lovers there whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. Yeah, that's in your Bible. (laughs) Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Holy smokes. You may be thinking, these words are inappropriate for a Sunday sermon. There's children in here, Pastor. Maybe you think that the sermon or the Bible should should come with some sort of content warning. But let us remember, these are not men's words. These are not Ezekiel's words describing the idolatry of the people in Jerusalem. These are God's words 
God uses this language. God has used this disgusting graphic imagery to convey just how gross and adulterous and vile is the idolatry of His people who He saved for His glory. He's saying to the people, I took you for my wife when you were not beautiful and I cleaned you up. I gave you all you could ever need. I loved you. I provided for you. I gave you a home. I was faithful to you and you cheated on me. No, worse. You paid other men to commit adultery with you. It wasn't enough for you to be pursued by pagan people and their gods. You willingly chased after them and gave all yourself over to their worship in hopes that they would love you when I loved you first. It is not common especially in news media, TV shows, social media today, it's not common to be told that sin is disgusting. In fact, quite the opposite. What the Bible calls sin, our culture commonly calls self-expression, living your best life. And as we express ourselves and as we in our sinfulness chase our dreams, we usually end up chasing our own glory and our own fame and our own sense of fulfillment and our own supposed momentary happiness. Ancient Israel, friends, was not much different. Maybe I should say we're not much different from them. Their hearts had grown so cold to the call of God to repent from sin that He had turned to graphic portrayals of their sin so that they will be without excuse in knowing just how wicked they've been. The people of Israel were not convinced that they were actually the problem, though. They thought that their fathers and their grandfathers were the problem. There was a proverb in Israel in those days, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Which means something like, God is punishing us for stuff that was our dad's fault. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord says very clearly to the people of Jerusalem, Oh yes, your fathers were a problem. And so were you. So turn and repent of sin and live. We read in Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 19. Yet you say, why should... Not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father. When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Verse 23, the Lord says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Well, hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make, yourselves, make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Three things are evident in God's judgment of removal upon Israel and the city of Jerusalem. First, God's holiness is a defining aspect of who He is. If God is anything, He is holy. He's without flaw. He's without fault. He is without equal. He is loving in His commitment to His people, and He is righteous in His judgment. God explains over 70 times in Ezekiel that He does all that He does so that they will know that I am the Lord. There is none like Him in holiness, and His holiness is worthy of being known. That's the first thing we know from God's judgment. Second, we learn that God is impartial in His judgment of sin. He does not punish flippantly. He never over-punishes. His judgment is always true. His judgment is always without error. Sometimes this is where many of us stop in understanding God as He reveals Himself through the Old Testament. He's holy. He's just. He's punishing. End of story. 
But if we miss the third insight, even from this message of judgment, we miss the character of God altogether. He is holy. He is impartial in judgment, but he's also full of grace and mercy. The purpose of sending prophets like Ezekiel was to call the people to avoid punishment by turning from their sin. Why will you die? O house of Israel, God says, turn and live. To receive forgiveness and to find grace from God is the hope that he offers to his people. God is a perfect judge, but he also loves imperfect sinful people. He loves them such that he says plainly, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Why will you keep sinning and die? Turn and live. My friend this morning, do not be deceived by those who would want to paint the God of the Old Testament as different from the God of the New, as though there were two gods in the Bible. He is the same throughout. He is holy throughout. He is impartial throughout. He judges sin in perfect righteousness throughout. And he also extends grace and forgiveness and life to those who turn from their sin throughout. There is a message of judgment, of removal of the people of Israel and removal of God's glory from among his people's worship. And Ezekiel 33, in the 12th year of Ezekiel's exile, he gets word that the city of Jerusalem has finally fallen. It's been sacked by Babylon. God did all that he said that he would do. And we might expect here that Ezekiel would do like Jeremiah did and write a book of lamentation for the fallen city, but he doesn't. Still captive to the word of Yahweh, the Lord of all, Ezekiel delivers a series of messages from chapter 33 to the end, not of judgment, but messages of hope. Hope for those who have been exiled from their homeland. Now that God's justice has been poured out, he promises to pour out in even greater measure hope and peace and life for his people. The latter part of Ezekiel is a message of hope, a message of renewal. There are several ways that God is going to bring renewal to and among his people. First of all, he promises a new shepherd and a new king. Chapters 34 and 37 are among my favorite in Ezekiel and and maybe among my favorite in all of the Bible, and they may be yours too. In Ezekiel 34, God speaks a harsh word against the shepherds of Israel, their, their religious leaders, for not leading the people in holiness and for taking advantage of them. And then God says in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among them that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into a land, into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. Verse 15, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And in contrast to the wicked kings of their recent past, God promises in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord. I've spoken. This promise of a shepherd like David, a new king, is repeated in Ezekiel 37, verse 24. After God gives the prophet of Ezekiel a vision of a valley of dry bones there, brought to life by his word, prophesied over it, the valley of bones becomes a standing army full of life and vigor and strength. And this valley of dry bones, now made into an army, will be promised a new king like David. 
That man after God's heart who had been dead for 500 years who will shepherd them in righteousness and justice. We see historically that the last faithless king of Judah, Zedekiah, would have the throne taken from him and given to a later descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who is a shepherd king that does not abuse his sheep for his own fattening, but instead gives his life as an atoning sacrifice for his sheep. And so here we begin to see the book of Ezekiel anticipate the person of Christ, Jesus himself, who said in John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's a shepherd unlike those faithless shepherds of Israel so many years before. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they'll listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. God promises a new shepherd and a new king, the fulfillment of which comes in the person of Jesus, the, the only divine Son of God who is fully God and fully man, who shepherds God's people in justice, in faith, giving himself for their livelihood. God promises not only a new shepherd and a new king for his repenting remnant, but also he promises a new heart and a new spirit. You remember how God diagnosed the sickness of Israel's heart in chapter 16, comparing them to something worse than a prostitute? With 20 chapters in the destruction of Jerusalem later, God gives a promise of hope for a people whose hearts of sin led them to destruction. This is the passage we read as we began this morning. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. As God says, I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Good news, Israel, I will take you from the nations and I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. For my sake, God says, so that the world will know that I am God, that I am holy, that I am just, that I am in control. So the world will know that I am gracious and that I give mercy and that I forgive and that I alone can give life where there was none to all who ask. For my sake, God says, I'm going to make you new from the inside out. I'm going to give you the heart that you desperately need but cannot make for yourself. I'm going to give you a new spirit, my own spirit, so that you will love holiness and righteousness. I will make you what you never knew you wanted to be but what your heart has always longed for. And so Jesus, almost 600 years later, the good shepherd, says that we too, even today, must have a new heart, a new spirit by being born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to Nicodemus, that Pharisee at night, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. To the one who has trusted Jesus, the good shepherd, who gave his life for sinners and raised it again, God promises the gift of his own Holy Spirit to dwell in their hearts, to make them holy, to cause them to be born again, to live a life that is marked by that which only the Holy Spirit of God can produce. 
a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, as Paul says in Galatians 5. And as this promise that God gives to the people all the way back in Ezekiel foretells at the end, God also promises a new dwelling place. He's going to renew their shepherd. He's going to be a new shepherd, a new king. He's going to renew their own heart, their own spirit, and he's going to renew the place where they live. The loss of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple were the worst thing that God's people could imagine happening to them. The glory of the Lord leaving the temple in chapter 10 is the most gut-wrenching reality that they could have faced. It's nice to have the promise of a new shepherd. It's nice to have the promise of a new heart, a new spirit. But what does it matter if they have no home? In the final nine chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, the prophet is given a vision of a new temple. It's a detailed vision. And yet it's not so specific that it can be attributed to an actual temple. For instance, there is no height that is given uh, as to how tall it's to be built. But it is a beautiful temple. And better still, its chief occupant returns. The Lord returns to his temple. Just as the glory of the Lord left the temple so many years earlier, Ezekiel has a reverse image in chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the Lord, of, uh, glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kiber Canal, I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This new glory-filled temple that Ezekiel sees is provided for by a new prince who leads the people to worship as they ought and keeps festival and feasts as commanded by God. There's a river in Ezekiel's vision that flows from the threshold of the temple going from a trickle to rushing rapids as it flows out to the nations. There are trees for the healing of the nations that grow without fail along its banks. And in his vision, the tribes of Israel have land allotments restored to them. This is a grand homecoming at the end of Ezekiel. And the city gets a new name. No longer is it called Jerusalem, which means foundation of peace. But as we read in Ezekiel 48:35, the last verse of Ezekiel, the name of the city from that time on shall be, in Hebrew, Yahweh Shema. In English, the Lord is there. The forever home of the rescued remnant of God's people will be in the presence of the God who saved them, who loved them, who warned them, who punished them, who scattered them, who preserved them, who regathered them, who renewed them, and who gives them life incorruptible. The temple vision of Ezekiel and the promise of a God-filled forever home for his people is recapitulated. It's, it's, it's revisited in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. There, the apostle John received a vision of Jesus Christ who had, who had ascended to God after dying for sins and being raised again. Jesus had promised that he would return to gather his people to himself, and in the meantime, he gives this vision to John to encourage the church. Revelation 21, 1-4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What's the name of that new city that Ezekiel said he saw? The Lord is there. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
In Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1, John says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There's a river flowing out from under the threshold of the temple in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel's vision. And John sees another river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Ezekiel is a book about the holiness of God, about the seriousness of sin, and about God's utmost concern for His integrity and for the holiness of His creatures. Now, ultimately, Ezekiel is a book about the gospel, the good news of the whole of Scripture, that it reminds us that God is the sovereign and glorious creator of all things. It reminds us of our createdness in God's image and and to bring Him glory. Ezekiel reminds us of the complicity that we all have in sin. The soul that sins shall die, God says. And that our death is not just because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, but because we are sinners. This is a prophetic book that graciously warns of the consequences of remaining in sin and of the hope that there is in God for those who turn to Him. It's a book that's full of the promise of God to rescue sinners, to dwell among them, to make them new and whole and holy. And it's a book that reminds us that God does all of this so that the world will know that He is the Lord, that no God saves like sin from Him that no God loves beyond measure like Him, that no God becomes a man like He did in Jesus, that no God lives His own life for His people like Him, that no God, excuse me, that no God gives His own life for His people like Him, and that no God can bring dead souls back to life like He can, and that no God, no God, no God is worthy of worship like Him. Do you need the kind of renewal that Ezekiel prophesied? Forgiveness of sin, new heart, new spirit? Renewal like this is there for the asking when you trust Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the Holy King, the Giver of His Holy Spirit. You need only let loose of your sin to hold fast to Him in faith and be made new. All of us will either be removed or renewed. In our sin, if we remain in it without repentance, we will be removed from the presence of God forever. But if we'll trust Jesus, if we'll give our lives to Him as the one who gave His life for us, the promise of Scripture is that we'll be renewed. We'll be given a new heart and new spirit. We'll be given forgiveness. We'll be given right standing with God who made us. And the promise of a new dwelling place where we'll be with our God forever. The name of that place is the Lord is there. I hope to be there with you. Let's pray together.